Welcome back, everybody, to episode four of Between Giants. My name is Gabriel, and I'm here with my esteemed co-host, Ishmael. I'm Ish, aka Mega Man. We're back this time with another two topics, and I believe you're up first, so why don't you lead us right in? Yeah, I'm, I'm up first, and I want to talk about this time... I, I, it's, I want to talk about movies, but I specifically want to talk about this phenomenon, and there's been a couple YouTube videos on it, but I want to bring it to the podcast forum. I want to know what you think about the current state of... A cinematic universes and how a lot of franchises now want to create cinematic universes okay um marvel doing the first of course and uh then you have like dc trying to build up on that but even other places are doing cinematic universes you can argue that uh planet of the apes was a cinematic universe before marvel or dc ever was but uh yeah what do you think about cinematic universes because a lot of people say that they are ruining cinema in the sense that uh you can't go watch a movie in and of itself. Right. You can't just say, I'm going to go watch one movie for what it is. Because there's so much knowledge and precursor information that you need to know before you step into theaters nowadays. You need to have seen every lineup. And they argue that you don't, but I argue that you don't get the full effect of a mm-hmm. movie if you don't know a, a majority of the facts. You don't have to know all of them, but you want some of the through lines. But... I am also a believer, and some people argue, that it makes movies better because you get to see recurring characters, they get developed, you know, some people say Netflix shows are better than, like, movies because they get to develop these characters. Well, cinematic universes allow for character development in the, in the way that people say movies haven't. So, uh, I'll just jump it off there. I want to talk about cinematic universes and their effect on cinema, and yeah. Yeah, sure. It's interesting that you mentioned that Netflix shows because I think you're right. They have a lot of time to develop characters and themes and topics and if movies are trying to emulate that in some sort of sense you got to ask the question well what's the point of this being a movie right what's the point of me spending 15 bucks to see it in a special theater you know and spend like ten dollars on popcorn and why, why am i out here in the first place yeah i think i don't necessarily have a personal problem with franchises because I am the kind of consumer that they're going for. I am the guy who will watch the franchises. Oh yeah, I hate I hate you know, I hate big money companies, but like I'm giving Disney every single dollar <laughs> yeah. when it comes They've to the They've got Marvel me franchise. figured out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like they targeted me specifically, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think it's really interesting mentioning the the Netflix stuff cuz it's you know, um what's the point of movies then? Like why what makes a movie what what is the specific format of a movie that you can get out of it? Like, what is inherent about a movie that you can't get in a TV show? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I I think that question is is too difficult <laughs> for... I mean, I'm not a film major of any right. sort, and I'm not a film scholar. So I think it might be too difficult to answer among us. I don't want to <laughs> say that we can't even a- attempt to answer that. But I think there's there's a difference... In the sense that when you go to watch a movie, you are under the impression that when you step into that theater, you will have watched a full story. Whether it be a part of a full story, or just you know, a segment of a trilogy or something like mm-hmm. that. Or you, you don't want to leave the movie theater without, hey, this is how the movie started. This is the climax. And then this was the resolution. Whether it be good or bad. I mean, one of the most famous, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker is a famous uh, kind of archetype of a character that by the end of the movie loses mm-hmm. but at the same but the point is it's still there 
you you see Luke Skywalker from beginning to lost in that first movie, and that's what started the franchise. So I think people don't want to go into a movie getting on with the expectation that it's just set up for the next one, and that so I think that might be what TV does does more than movies and movies don't do as often is TV is a lot of setup for the next episode. I mean, you know, I love the Flash and Arrow and every every week is set up for the next week. I mean, they they have their big stories, but everything's setting setting up for the mid-season and the final, you know. So like I think TV does a lot more setup than movies have to. Um especially standalone movies that are great within themselves. I mean, every Oscar nominated movie, Moonlight, my favorite mm-hmm. of all of them. It was a great standalone movie. There's never going to be a sequel. I don't need a sequel. It's just a good movie in and of itself. And I sat down and watched it knowing that I will watch a story from start to finish. And I think that's where movie going is different from turning on your TV or pulling up Netflix. It's You're going to watch this amount of content, and that's all of it, you know? Well, it's funny you mention that because the Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of breaks that rule because they leave so many little hints for people to figure out i don't know how many freaking videos i've seen where they show thanatos gauntlet in one of the movies i don't remember it was a thor or something yeah yeah they show thanos has been in the movie since like avengers like yeah and it's like it's it's set up in their own way because they they can't break the rule as easily as or like they can't do that as easily as you might in tv shows so they have to sneak it in their own way yeah but i think it's it's a it's a byproduct of having so much content to draw on. A hundred percent. Years of content. Years. Right, exactly. When, Decades. I mean, when did the when Superman first came out? When was that? Like, I can't tell you the, the honest It's number. a long time. It was a, it's been, been a long been a time. While. It's been a while. I mean, there's so much storylines to pull from and so much character to pull from. It's, it's hard to not tap that well and have it, like, overflow a little bit. Yeah, Action Comics, I think, has been around with Superman's first. I think it was the 1920s. Superman's yeah, debut, yeah. Um, which is old i could be wrong but action comics goes way back and superman was one of the first so i mean if anybody is a good example but that being said we'll make that distinction because the marvel cinematic universe is successful it's remarkably successful monetarily and in most occasions cinematically their movies are good mm-hmm. uh and i think they're tapping into something interesting because they're re- they're realizing that a cinematic universe can simply mean we have a universe of characters to pull from but these movies can be different uh, by that I mean they can make a like steam steampunkish galaxy Star Warsy movie called it Guardians of the Galaxy, but then they can make this like spy James Bond espionage thriller and call it like Captain America and hopefully the next Black Widow movie. Yeah. Or they can like make a funny weird quirky superhero and make it Ant Man or Spider Man or Deadpool or, or Deadpool R rated, which is a yeah. whole other genre. And then speaking of R rated, now they're breaking into like westerns like they're gonna make a western out of logan which is uh, dude, which I'm is really interesting they're, yeah. they're taking characters and, and putting them in classic cinematic tropes or different genres because we used to see marvel movies as superhero mm-hmm. movies but now it's kind of blurring the lines now it's well this is just a western it just so happens that this is wolverine it could have been any you know it, the point of the story is that he's logan but it's a cowboy story so it's, it's very interesting um they're, they're realizing that the superpowers aren't necessarily the most important part of the story. They're tangential to that. The, the story has to be good itself. Um, on the opposite end of successful, uh, the DC Cinematic Universe. Oh, boy. Uh, it's been flopping over and over again. Wonder Woman, I'm hoping, is good. I think it's going to be their saving grace. It needs to be good. But uh, they don't seem to have the same skill set of uh, 
making interesting movies that aren't just set up for the next one. Yeah, so what do you think about that? I think Christopher Nolan has simultaneously saved and destroyed the DC reputation. Mm, the Nolan. the uh, Batman Returns trilogy, yeah, the Arkham Dark Knight trilogy, trilogy yeah. is fantastic. Like the the Dark Knight. Yeah. I mean, what a fantastic movie! Best I guess we could have three. a whole podcast on just you know the uh, the the Dark Knight, but it set a precedent that is maybe not the thing you should chase after because then they got this idea that we have to be gritty dark movies yeah 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 and honestly the my one of my favorite parts about the marvel movies is how much color and vibrancy they've got to them yeah. especially to guardians of the galaxy well i would i would hold off on color because notoriously their color palette isn't that great but their jokes are definitely right. there they have a lot of jokes sometimes they don't hit where they should but i love the scene in avengers uh uh, Age of Ultron, where they're all trying to pick up Thor's hammer. That just makes me. I like rewatch that scene on YouTube because it's so funny. That right, I just they're like watch friends, it. and they're like, they grew up as human. Yeah. You know, most of them, and they're, that's how they interact on a day to day basis when they're not like putting on their suits and fighting stuff. Yeah, like, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we try to lift Thor's hammer? Because he's our buddy now. Yeah, that, that right? actually would. I can see that happen. If I was friends with Thor, I'd be like, hey, can I get a crack at it? You know, like that's something I would do. Um, yeah, DC doesn't seem to be able to handle their characters, I guess, in human ways. Because their her- their characters, um, some of their characters, are above human in a lot right. of ways. So it, it makes it hard to... It, how do you ground Superman by not making him gritty? I don't know how to do it. I mean, I'm not the writer, but I don't think they went about it the perfect way. And it's it's really funny because we've only have a, a flip situation in which the TV shows for DC are actually really good. Oh, yeah. Flash, Arrow, I mean, they're great. Yeah. Um, and the the Marvel ones, they've got they've gone for the grittier, darker stuff. And yeah, they're actually successful at it. But I That's think because, actually, it's a great yeah. point. Flash and, and Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow and Supergirl are all very like lighthearted. Yeah, while their movie counterparts are gritty or attempting not to be now, uh, but they still are grittier. While Marvel movies are much more jovial, uh, and but then you have like. Daredevil, which yeah, is like yeah. a really gritty, or Jessica Jones and introspection, Dark, super dark. darkness. It was just insanely, I mean, insanely good. But maybe, maybe grittiness and darkness doesn't translate to superhero movies in the same way as it does to a TV show. I think the factor there is time. Time, yeah. You know, the Jessica Jones and, and Daredevil, they have a lot of time to flesh out these things. They don't have to jump to the extremes of a conclusion. They can build up suspense. You yeah. know, we see. Daredevil build up to the suit. We see Jessica Jones kind of... All season. Right. It was like a tail end, yeah. Right, and we see Jessica Jones kind of being a reluctant superhero to finally taking on a duty that she feels she has to take. Yeah. It's... That's the factor of time in there. And I don't think the DC people are taking in their time difference when making a movie. You can't fit in all those plot points. Like... Yeah. They just have, like, three different villains in one movie, and I'm like, okay. I well. mean, let's not even talk about Suicide Squad and their oh, montage man. of... 30-minute montage of character exposition. And, uh, I mean, I think Katana and Killer Croc shouldn't have even been in that movie. I mean, Killer Croc was, like, had one plot point, but, like, we didn't know anything about him. And then Katana was introduced as the girl who's, like, Rick Flagg's partner, it, and right. she has a sword that cuts your soul and traps it in that. Like, what? Like... You need more exposition. You can't just bring this person on and make it... I just... I mean, you can tell that they tried to make it less gritty. Definitely. They tried to add a lot of jokes. Mm -hmm. But it just missed the mark on story. It just... They could not... 
you can't just win me over with these characters. You need to right. make a good I, story. I think they got they put their feet in the right spot with tone. I think that was a, that would have been a really good tone to work with, where you have these people in crazy dark situations and then they're lighthearted about it because they're the bad guys. Like, yeah, they didn't absolutely. treat any of anything else in the right respect. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, so then, how do we feel about cinematic universes in general? Because we've been talking about superheroes, but there's also, I mean, this up-and-coming news that came out about a year ago. People have been talking about it. That 20, the Jump Street movies, 21 and 22, yeah. are merging universes with Men in Black. And the next movie is going to be a, a Men in Black Jump Street movie. Um, I, I know it's going to be hilarious. And it's gonna make be a box office success, like two of the greatest movies, uh, funniest, yeah. Uh, but uh, do we just want do we just want people doing that? You know, like taking any film franchise that works, and just saying, hey, let's just combine it with this other good one. Like, what if like in a couple of years we're looking at like Back to the Future, Ghostbusters too? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like what's the point of that? Like, I don't I don't want to see Marty McFly team up with the, the Ghostbusters trio. To go back in the future and stop his grandfather ghost from doing something like I, I'm just like not Dude, interested. That's so in that. weird. I I'd never heard of that until right now. That yeah, they're, that they're like making a spinoff, basically. Yeah, that's so weird. I have no idea how to feel about that. My my gut reaction is to be like, that sounds not that good. But then you think about it, and you think about how funny those movies are separately, and you you think of the writers behind them, and you think they can do it. But do I want them to do it? I don't know. I don't know. Right. Something I'm thinking about what elements they would try to pull from each movie. And obviously one of the biggest factors in those movies are the actors. Is mm-hmm. Will Smith going to be in it? You know Will Smith is going to be it, in it. I mean, he's a fantastic actor. He's a you hilarious know, guy. Will Smith, Ice Cube, uh, Channing Tatum, and what's his face? Uh, Jonah Hill. Yeah. Yeah, all four of them. You know they're gonna be in that movie. I mean, that that sounds fun. I just I don't know. Honestly, I'd have to I'd have to hear more of that. I, I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, I mean, it's happening. Cinematic universes out of everything. So uh, get ready to spend a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but as for opinions on whether they're good or bad, only time will tell. Maybe yeah. one day we'll revert back to the single shot cinema movie style, or will or cinematic universes will take take control and we'll we'll be watching serialized movies like we're watching Netflix shows Uh, which might not be a bad thing which might not be a good thing but I just wanted to bring it to the podcast and uh, I think we wrapped up that conversation so let's jump into yours okay great Um, this time I've got something a little bit different Um, instead of maybe talking about something off the top of my head I'm thinking I could break down one of the chapters from Moby Dick and the chapter I have in mind is called, let me pull it up here. It's a short chapter. It's about two pages. Um, and just for some uh, context, if you don't know what Moby Dick is, um, I don't know what you're doing. No yeah, offense. I would. we usually say, hey, if you don't know what this book is, go read it. I'll hold off on Moby Dick. It's very yeah. big. <laughs> so, you know, read it at your own, at your, <laughs> at your own suggestion. We're not going to suggest that for you. Moby Dick is a dense book. It was written a long time ago. Uh, Herman Melville lived from 1819 to 1891. Yeah. So the language is a little bit different. The things are a little bit different. Um, so you're going to read from the chapter? No. I, 
I want to abbreviate just a little bit because I don't want to read through the whole thing because some of it is not that fun to read. Okay, cool. Well, go for the abbreviation. Let's okay. Um, so, to give you some background on the actual story of Moby Dick, it's about this guy who chases down a white whale that like like ate his arm or something. Yeah. Yeah, and then he chases him down. It's about revenge. But in between a lot of... It's a very long book. And Herman Melville is very good at not talking about the characters or the plot. And mm-hmm. instead... Talking he sounds about, like a phenomenal writer. <laughs> and instead he does something that he's extremely excellent at, which is talking about the human condition. Hmm. Um, so this is an example of that. So if you're worried about spoilers or something, there's no characters here. There's no story. Just what it means to be a human. Sort of. All right, shoot. Okay, so in these first, uh, this is chapter 60, called The Line, in reference to the whaling lines that they use. I just want to get, you said chapter 60, right? Yes. Listeners, chapter 60. This is how long this book is. It's very long. (laughs) Yeah, so go for it. Um, Okay, so the, the, the surface point of this chapter is to set up your knowledge for what whalers do. Um, which is explained here in the first sentence that says, with reference to the whaling scene shortly to be described, as well for the better understanding of all similar scenes elsewhere presented. I have here to speak of the magical, sometimes horrible whale line. So we've got two things going on here. He's going to explain to us so we have some knowledge about what the actual mechanics of hunting a whale looks like, and also some sort of other quality that this whale line have, this magical, sometimes horrible whale line. Um, these first two or three chapters are essentially a Wikipedia article. On whaling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Goes, so here, the the line originally used in fishery was of the best hemp, slightly vapor with tar, and you get this idea. He's talking about the, the actual, like, what they actually are. Um, and it's not that interesting, and it's a little confusing, so I, I'm not going to get caught up in that. Um, then he talks about uh, probably the most interesting setup, which is how these lines are actually arranged on the boat. And if you don't know how whaling boats look like, they're almost like life rafts, not not the like lifeboats. They're super small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not you're not thinking of a steamboat. You're not not, not none of these things. They're very small. Um, in fact, here he says, I believe it's a a one inch of a thick thickness is wow. the boat. So that's that's so thin. It's crazy because. You're hunting down like a sixty-ton whale. That's ridiculous. Um, if you've played Assassin's Creed, yeah. If you played Black Flag, you you know the boat. You know yeah. the boat. Yeah, uh, which is one of my favorite activities in that game. But yeah. um, let's see. So, the way these are arranged is that there's a there's a coil. At least American boats are arranged in a coil. So imagine a coil of line at one end of the ship, and basically what they do is that he. They wrap it all around the boat. So imagine you're crisscrossing this line all over the boat. And if you're rowing, um, you, you can feel like the line. He says the, uh, you can feel the line on your wrist as you row. Mm, got um, it. So imagine being entangled by this rope and imagine a whale pulling, pulling down on that rope. Wow. He says phrases like, you're at the bottom of the sea. Well, nobody will ever hear or see from you again. Jesus. That's pretty terrifying stuff. I mean, this is this is crazy. I mean, he says the the harpoon can fly at any second, and you will have no warning of what's going on. Um, and he basically from here on he talks about this account, right? He so he says, um, 
He talks about the specific arrangement of the, the whale lines. This arrangement is indispensable for common safety's sake. For were the lower end of the line in any way attached to the boat, and were the whale then to run the line out to the end in almost a single smoking minute, as he sometimes does, he would not stop there. For the doomed boat will infallibly be dragged down after him into the profundity of the sea. And in that case, no town crier would ever find her again. Jeez. Jeez. I'm, that's some pretty hard stuff. Um, and, you know, at this point, you're like, geez, whaling is hard. I would hate to be a whaler. And you're like, yeah, okay. This is all pretty terrible. But it doesn't stop here. And from this point on, I will read uh, the rest of it. It's just about a paragraph left. Go for it. Again, as the profound calm which only apparently precedes and prophecies of the storm is perhaps more awful than the storm itself. And basically, that's a really fancy way of saying that the situation on the boat is like the calm before the storm. And that is, you don't know. The worst part about all of this is that you don't know when it's going to happen. You have zero clue. It's you got to be ready for it. Um, for indeed, the calm is but the wrapper and the envelope of the storm and contains it in itself as the seemingly harmless rifle holds the fatal powder and the ball and the explosion. So the graceful repose of the line as it silently serpentines about the oarsman before being brought into actual play. Of course, just reiterating here in case you maybe fell off, he's talking about the, the serpentine lines. Every, everybody's covered in these crisscross lines. Everybody's wired. And it can go off basically like a gunshot immediately, quickly. He says, this is a thing which carries more of true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. Jeez. So he just spent about a page telling us how dangerous whaling is. And then, then on top of another layer of that, the anticipation of the fear that your demise could come at any second if you're whaling is even more worse than any of that. Yeah. But here's the twist. He says, but why say more? Now we've suddenly changed, right? He, he's he's going through this whole topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What right? Mean, but why say more? You just spent right. five minutes explaining. Yeah. And, you know, at the beginning he tells us, I'm telling you this so you have a better understanding of what these people go through. Yeah. But then he, he flips the script a little bit. But why say more? Here's the best. Here's my favorite line. All men lived enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters round their necks. But it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in the whaleboat, you would not at heart feel one more wit of terror, though be seated before your evening fire with a poker and not a harpoon by your side. Jeez. <laughs> wow, man. That was not ready for that level of profundity. It's amazing what he does in just about two or three sentences. That's amazing. All men live enveloped in whale lines. That whole story you went through, all these dangers the, the whalers Wikipedia put themselves page. to. Yeah, right. The Wikipedia page of, of whaling, just to get to that point. He says, everybody is basically whalers, whaling. Right? Anybody, you, anybody could die at any time. He's basically reminding us of our own mortality. Yeah. You could die at any time. If you're, if you're at home, cozy, feeling safe, listening to our podcast... If you truly understood what your life was like, you would be as terrified in your, the comfort of your own home as you would be out there wailing. Jeez. Herman. Herman, Herman. That's now, deep stuff. 
we've gone a couple layers here, but to me, there is a layer more. And I want to ask you, you've just heard this, this chapter. What is the point of tell What is the point of reminding you about your own mortality? What do you think is the point of, why is he telling you this? Well, I mean, coming from the idea of tropes, it would logically, you would hope, unless it's a very sad, sad book, you would hope, unless it's like Kafka, yeah. you know, unless it's, or Anton Chekhov, unless it's, you know, some Russian or German writers, uh, historically, it's usually a setup for explaining why life is worth living and why there is happiness and why, um, despite the fears, uh, it's, it's the bravery in people and it's the, the, the honor in people that makes us human. Uh, so yeah, that's usually uh, the setup for it. I'm, I'm curious if that's where he goes with it. Um, yeah, where does Herman take it? I think actually you're extremely close because uh, there's a part I left out on purpose. Um, that's, that was the end of the chapter. So in order to get the, I think for me, the true meaning of that chapter, you've got to go back and reread it, uh, which I will do now. He says... Da, 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 da. Okay, so basically he's he's going through again through his description of how terrible it feels like. And then I think there's an interesting passage here in between that. He says, Nor can any son of mortal woman for the first time seat himself amid these hempen intricacies, again referring to the well lines, and while straining his utmost at the oar, bethink him that at any unknown instant the harpoon may be darted. And all these horrible contortions be put into play like ringed lightnings. He cannot thus be circumstanced without a shudder that makes the very mar marrow in his bones to quiver to, to quiver in him like a shaken jelly. Jeez. In in that kind of sentence, he's basically talking about the reader. Yeah. Once we've read through this chapter, we've hopefully realized how our own mortality which if you're a reasonable person might give you a lot of anxiety you might feel scared much like a whaler on this first time on the boat yeah you know we're right now we're that whaler on that first time on the boat if we're reading this right we've just gone through this whole thing and then we've realized oh shit we could die at any moment yeah that's <laughs> right that terror can you know shake your the bone in your marrows to jelly yeah um but then this is this is that other twist right another layer deeper between that Yet habit, strange thing, what cannot habit accomplish? Gayer sallies, more merry mirth, better jokes and brighter repartees you never heard over your mahogany than you will hear over the half-inch white cedar of the whaleboat. When thus hung in hung hangman's nooses and like the six, six burgers of the Kali before King Edward, the six men composing the crew pull into the jaws of death with, with a halter around every neck, as you may say. Jeez. And I think you were very close to what he was saying. He says, what's the point of this? Well, the he says, yet habit, strange yeah. thing. Yeah. The more you are accustomed to confronting your own mortality, the better life you will lead. He yeah. says, gayer sallies, more merry mouth, better jokes. You've never heard over your mahogany, that is your table at yeah, home, than in the half-inch white cedar of the whaleboat. To me, the value of this chapter is not, he's not just being cruel, you know, he's not just trying to make you feel bad about your life. He's saying, if you're able to constantly confront this fear of death, yeah, your quality of life improves. Everything you do matters. Yeah. In some ways, he's saying that 
a life without adventure is 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 so mundane that that's more unbearable than the fear of death and uh, i mean that brings up an interesting point right are we saying is in some ways is he saying being uh for lack of a better term boring mm-hmm. and not doing anything interesting uh, to yourself not just to herman like you don't have to be a whaler i mean there's tons of things you can do that are interesting or expanding your horizons or pushing yourself to do something that you're uncomfortable with if you're not doing any of that stuff in some ways to herman melville you're dead it's actually coming close to your fears that makes you live uh, which i mean these dualities are very interesting they even talk about and and as soon as you were reading it, it made me think of uh, more technically, uh, in statistics, the idea of a micromort, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of the one in one thousand chance of dying, and how I many. Think it's a billion. Oh, uh, what was? Uh, it's a billion. Yeah, it's a no, billion, million. A million. million. Yeah, it's one in a million chances of dying, uh, and it can go up, obviously. So, like, I don't know how. For example, this is off the top of my head. Uh, like, five micromorts is the chance you have of dying while crossing the street, and like a hundred on a plane while like it's seven hundred in a car. Uh, these are, I mean, small chances. But we need to measure them. And if you were to live your life on a on a balance sheet of micromorts, you might not do anything ever. If you you know, so like yeah, I'm sure the whaling micromort calculation is is got is huge. huge. Especially in, in his time. It was it must have been like, yeah, you're gonna die at some point if you're a whaler. But um, if you know anything about base jumping like uh, people that like to jump off buildings or high or high peaks, and you have to. It takes a lot of skydiving to be a base jumper, and they're really good at it. Uh, but there's this thing that they do. Um, once once you become a base jumper, you write letters to the people you care about and put it in a box, and like it's just in this community. I think, I, I, whatever you just put it like in a black box or something. That in the case of your death, these letters get sent out. And, like, to the people that you want and, like, the information side explaining why you're doing what you're doing or just saying what you want to say to the people that are in your life. Because every time a base jumper jumps, they're putting their life at risk. And they know that they die. In fact, I was watching a documentary once about base jumping. And they and there's in the base jumping community, they say you either retire or you keep going until you die, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many people die from base jumping a year. But I'm sure the community is small enough that it never really makes the news. But uh, it's just interesting to think that to the rational mind or to the to the regular everyday mind, you say, oh, of course I'm not going to base jump. That's ridiculous. But in so many ways, we don't base jump, but we put ourselves in positions where we're running the risk of doing it. I love cliff diving. I love scuba diving. I love snowboarding, skateboarding. They're all very dangerous things to do. But I do them because it's fun. It's exhilarating. There's this there's this French idea, and I'll stop rambling after this. But there's this French idea uh, called the attraction of the void. That's really interesting to me. Uh, how humans are attracted to the idea of death. Yeah, yeah. And you know how when you like come up to a ledge, there's something in you that's telling you to jump, and you can't explain what it is. It just really wants you to jump, and you know you're not gonna jump. But it's something like, what if I did? Um, yeah, so that was my, those are my thoughts as you were reading uh, Micromorts and the and, uh, Attraction of the Void and uh, Base Jumping, which I don't think Herman Melville was <laughs> thinking about exactly, but that's what came to mind when you read it. To me, what's what was great about that is, uh, I mean, 
everything here I'm talking about is about layers, right? Yeah. Herman Melville has this depth to his writing. To get what I got out of that passage took me about 30, 40 minutes of reading just these two pages. I yeah. mean, it's a lot. The The language is a little difficult uh, because it's old and, you know, the, the themes are so subtle and... and everywhere but and the topic is is boring i yeah. mean it's not it's not i don't, I don't want to read about what the what whale lines they use yeah. i don't care yeah <laughs> um but once you really start peeking out at what he's really trying to tell you the message itself is really eye-opening i mean when you when you read that and then you read that all men live enveloped in whale lines line when you first read that with a true understanding of what he means when he says that it's like it's crazy you're like oh shit like I could die like right now, and yeah. I live enveloped in well lines. That harpoon could fly out any at any point, right? It, I mean, that thought is is crazy. But then, because I mean, from an evolutionary standpoint, we can't sit there and think about our own mortality every day. We're not wired to do that because it's it's the most ineffective thing right. that we can do. And you know, he argues that you, know, you should, even though it's scary and terrifying. Yeah. Um, but the other part of this is that, um, I guess. Herman Melville makes me see the value in critical reading. The actual process of sitting down with this chapter and reading it over and over and over again. Yeah. To get to that conclusion was extremely satisfying. Yeah, and, and I've always disliked when people have said, but how do we know Melville meant to write yeah. that? Or how do we know Shakespeare? What if he just wanted the curtains to be blue? Or what if... Uh, what if uh, in The Great Gatsby, he just wanted there to be a green light? It doesn't really mean anything. That's not, uh, I think John Green puts it very, uh, in his vlogs, he puts it very, says it very well when he says that uh, the, the metaphors that you create when you read are yours. And in the sense that when you read a book or when you create a piece of art, um, you created it, but the metaphors belong to the audience in the sense that uh, they can read what they want to read out of it. I can read what I want to read out of it, even if it wasn't my intention. In fact, my intention doesn't play that much into the interpretation of the book. The interpretation is in the audience. Of course, I can explain myself yeah. and, and give input, but to some extent, the book will outlive me. The, 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 the context of the world will change, people will change, and they'll read it a different way. So, in so many ways, literature especially, the actual meanings of things and and just the meanings of paragraphs and just one chapter can change radically year after year age after age really generation after generation mm -hmm. and it's up to the people reading to make their own interpretation and it, i think that's a prime example right because in some ways a lot of authors want to explain their truth and want to write what's in them but in, all, in some ways, they also want to explain the truth about yeah. the world in their book, uh, the, about humanity, really. And I think it's a hard task. But I think Herman Melville is one example of a successful, because I don't think his, his, top, his meaning has changed a lot throughout the years. I think you can still read that chapter when he was around and now and kind of get the same thing out of it. Um, whether we called it Carpe Diem or YOLO, yeah. that's a completely, right. completely different distinction, but the same feeling is evoked and that's not uh, that's the sign of a good writer that your your intended meaning can persist beyond you that's powerful stuff yeah i think melville is really good at like i said talking about the human condition and not talking about the actual story or plot of what's going on yeah i actually have no idea what's happening in the book <laughs> no, right now yeah i have no clue either yeah um he has another really famous chapter uh i believe it's around the 40s called 
um, the whiteness of the whale. Yeah. Um, which I, I've heard is considered the best chapter in American literature. Yeah. Um, which is like a big title to carry. But if yeah. you read that chapter, you might understand why. And I mean, to essentially break it down for you, he's talking about morality. Yeah. You know, and this book was written around the Civil War. Oh, okay, interesting. And he's talking about, he's essentially talking about slavery. Yeah. And we can see those race relations today. And yeah. there's no way that, if you if you sat down and read The Whiteness of a Whale to, like, a classroom today, they would understand what he means. Oh, yeah. It's so obfuscated. It's hard to even explain to ourselves, people mm-hmm. who have read it. But I'm also curious, because there's this, and I guess this is the last we'll talk about Moby Dick, because um, we're running out of time here, but... Uh, I want to lighten it up and stop talking about death and, 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. and racism. There's this one, I guess it's rumored, I don't know if this is true, I didn't look into it, but uh, it's rumored one scene, you know the scene where uh, he's shaking hands after they capture the whale? No spoilers. Right, right, yeah. After, um, after they capture sorry. the whale. If you didn't know he captured the whale, he captures the whale. It's like 200 year old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, after they capture the whale, they have it, and they're like all shaking hands and, and like touching each other and stuff. Uh, there's like this theory that uh, going around that uh, it's actually a giant metaphor for um, homoerotic. Uh, they because they weren't homosexual per se. Um, the same way the Romans, when they would go off to war, yeah. they would have sex with each other on the boat because there were no women. I mean, that's just what they you know they needed their sexual pleasure. Uh, there's the same idea that on Moby Dick, this is what's happening on the boat. And there's a scene where they're shaking with the slime of the white whale on their hands. And it's just really, I mean, like, you read this passage, I, I've thought, of, like, originally I thought nothing of it. It's like, okay, yeah, they touched the whale, and, and I mean, they caught it, and now they're shaking each other's hands. But you reread it with that in your mind, and you're like, mm, that's weird. <laughs> that's 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 definitely that's a plausible yeah. thing that could have happened. Yeah, he's, it's a plausible. Yeah, it's a plausible innuendo. I don't know. It just doesn't really fit the the, the narrative of the the book to me. <laughs> um, but I, I I mean I would care less if that's the truth or not. It just doesn't fit the narrative of the book. I just you know death, racism, and now these guys are just gonna circle jerk. Like that's kind of weird. I I'd, I'd believe it because if he's talking about. The different human experiences, I could definitely, if he includes homoeroticism. He could, yeah. Oh, that'd be interesting. Maybe we'll, maybe in the next 15 years, people will talk about Moby yeah. Dick as the book. The slam of the white whale. Yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. Folks. That talks about homosexuality <laughs> and not um, about revenge. We'll yeah, see. Yeah. I mean, that, that'll be really interesting. Um, it's, a, it's a big book. In so, in so many ways, a chapter talks about something completely different than another does. Uh, well written. Just well oh, written. for sure. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else on Moby Dick? Um, no, just that it's a fantastic book, and if you've got the time and dedication to read it, I recommend it. Yeah, if you don't have the time or dedication to read it, there's always uh, audiobooks. I love audiobooks. They're pretty good. That's how I read books that I don't want to physically read with my eyes. <laughs> uh, if I'm if I'm not interested yeah. in actually reading it, I'll just listen to it, especially if it's short, three hours, puts my day away. But I mean, that cuts into podcast time, so, so you shouldn't download audiobooks. Maybe we should just like like be the middleman. I'll. If you really want, I'll come here and break down books for you. Yeah, we'll break down books for you if that's what you want. Uh, This has been another episode of Between Giants. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and more to come soon. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time. Love you.